Good morning, everybody. And uh, good morning to everyone watching on the live stream. Glad that you could be with us uh, to worship uh, with us this morning. I'm Zane Goggins. I'm the pastor here at Sweetwater Christian Church. I'm glad to be with you to share the love and word of God with you this morning. I uh, apologize. My voice sounds a little bit like I'm holding my nose. Uh, it's just uh, allergy season, I guess, in Houston. So forgive me. I hope it's not too distracting. Uh, let's take a moment and let's pray and ask the Lord for receptive hearts for his word this morning. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would give us <clears throat> eyes to see ears to hear, hearts that will receive uh, your love and word with joy this morning. Father, be with us today. Let your spirit reside in us as we listen and as we learn from and worship Jesus Christ together. Pray that everything that is made up from me would fall to the ground and everything that you have to say to us as a church would be received uh, with gladness this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, I can now confidently say that this is our last week in the lectionary, um, at least for the rest of the calendar year. We've been listening to, learning from, worshiping Jesus uh, as we journey through the book of Luke, which is what the lectionary has had us in. <clears throat> and we've been doing that for the last 17 weeks. This is our 18th week now. Next Sunday, We'll begin looking at the first of the four major events in Luke. So remember, Luke is ramping up to the crescendo of his story. It, it manifests in these four major events, and we're going to follow the spirit of Luke and uh, look at each of the four major events. Uh, we all know by now that Jesus is traveling down to Jerusalem, uh, his last trip he'll ever take in his life. Uh, and the first of the major events is called the triumphal entry. And that just means Jesus physically moving into the city of Jerusalem. And he doesn't do it unthoughtfully. Uh, he does it with kind of a show, actually. Uh, what he does at the triumphal entry uh, is he uh, is making a statement about who is really in charge of things. And so he's making one of the boldest statements he'll ever make in his entire ministry. And we'll get to see what that is next week. So beginning next week and for the, re uh, for the next month, the sermons you're going to hear are going to sound very Easter-y because the four major events are basically the story of Easter. And so it'll, it might feel a little out of place or odd hearing Easter-y sermons right before Advent. Um, <clears throat> but... Hearing the end of Jesus's life and ministry uh, is going to help us better contextualize the beginning of his life and ministry, if that makes sense. So, uh, so far, we've been looking at the middle part of his life, but for the next eight weeks, we'll look at the bookends of his life. Uh, not only will the next four, leaf serve, uh, four weeks serve as the culmination of the Gospel of Luke, but it will also serve as our preparation for Advent. Uh, our text today is another one of Jesus's parables. Uh, he happens to tell a lot of them. Last week, we listened to Jesus as he told us the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. Uh, we learned that God is not like the unjust judge, uh, sitting distant and far off, uninterested about the sufferings and the injustice in the world. Um, 
He's not listening for the loudest and peskiest prayers to grant and not paying attention to the softer ones or the less frequent ones, right? Um, And we learned that God is like the widow, constantly and relentlessly pursuing justice and making things right in the world alongside us. Um, And we also learned that the kingdom of God is right now, and it's also kind of not yet. It's a paradoxical kingdom. Um, and we live in that tension just like the 12 disciples did. So the, the, Jesus tells the 12 disciples that they should be persistent in prayer, that they should be persistent in praying to make things right in the world because prayer is not a passive or inactive thing. Prayer and theology and real life are all in the same thing together. They're inseparable from one another. And then Jesus ends that parable of the widow and the unjust judge with a a mysterious little question that we didn't get to last week. He ends with, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Meaning when the not yet becomes fully right now, or when the kingdom of God fully arrives, or as Uh, Horatio Spafford wrote in 1873, when my faith shall be sight. When that happens, will God find anybody who stayed persistent? Will God find anybody who lives faithfully? So we will be in Luke 18, 9 through 14 today. There are Bibles in front of you or under you. Uh, You can take that Bible home if you don't have one. And if you want to learn how to use a Bible or read a Bible, you can email me and we will... Uh, set up a time together, but go ahead and turn to Luke 18, 9 through 14. <coughs> today, <clears throat> today, Jesus will give us an example of what he will be looking for when the Son of Man comes. He's given us an example of what faith on the earth looks like to him. Um, And so, and that example comes in the form of a parable that we often call the Pharisee and the tax collector. So again, Luke 18, 9 through 14. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version this morning. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Although we haven't heard this specific parable from Jesus yet, uh, the mechanics of this parable should be immediately recognizable to you. 
we have two characters, Pharisee, a tax collector. Both of these characters represent us in certain kind of ways. They represent two different paths that we are faced with. And one path makes us look more like this. And one path makes us look more like that. And these paths look vastly different because, again, Luke loves contrasts. He loves opposites. And this parable is just one big contrast. It's a big opposite story. Uh, It's two opposite lives that you can live. Two options. I just want to take a a quick moment and talk about the Pharisees. Uh, You've heard me say the Pharisees for the last... 17, 18 weeks. Some of us don't know who the Pharisees are. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about a Pharisee, right? Um, You'll hear it a lot in books and sermons, and obviously when you read the New Testament. Uh, They're usually thought of as just the higher up religious leaders who hate Jesus. And that's not untrue. Um, It's just not totally true. So not all Pharisees were higher ups that opposed Jesus. Uh, If you were a Pharisee, Really what that meant was that you're part of a, uh, a social and religious movement in first century Jewish culture. It's, uh, it's not really quite right to call it a denomination. It's more right to call it a, a theological and social movement. It's a school of thought. Okay, there's the Pharisees and there's others like the Sadducees. You've probably heard the Sadducees. That's another social and religious movement within first century Judaism. Uh, and it developed about 150 years before Jesus. Uh, they took ritual purity and ritual traditions very seriously. Uh, they also looked to the oral law. Uh, so basically they have the, the first five books and then the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs, uh, all the, basically the Old Testament that we have. And they also took into account the teachings from rabbis over the centuries. Uh, so they listened to the oral law <coughs> and they believed in certain theological doctrines like the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they only looked at the first five books of the Bible and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So two different movements, okay? So uh, Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. He took all of those things just as seriously. He believed in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, It's very possible Jesus himself was a Pharisee. Uh, He believes in all of those same things. He quotes uh, scriptures from what we would call the Old Testament. And he, of course, believes in the resurrection of the dead, right? Uh, And that would explain why he's always at odds with the Pharisees, because he comes from the Pharisees. He's, he's critiquing the movement from within rather than critiquing, critiquing people he doesn't really know. Does that make sense? So uh, the Pharisees, they're very interested in keeping the law, following the law, ritual purity, serving God and their holiness, dedicated to the same Old Testament scripture you and I are dedicated to, dedicated to the same theological doctrines that you and I are dedicated to, like the resurrection of the dead. The problem, though, that the Pharisees have is that their zeal for ritual uh, purity and holiness, holiness makes them a little top-heavy. They, uh, they're really... Uh, full of themselves. Um, They walk around uh, with their noses in the air because they're very proud of being really good at being Jewish, okay? Uh, Not every Pharisee is like this, 
but enough of them are that Jesus finds it necessary to poke fun at them at nearly every chance he gets uh, in hopes of pointing out that in their good pursuit of holiness uh, and pursuit of God, some of them are really just pursuing themselves. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this parable. Uh, Just like in the parable last week, you remember the judge, he was the one with the position and the power. He was the one uh, with bad character. Here we have a Pharisee, uh, someone who prides themselves on being holy, uh, who's really good at his religion. He's supposed to be respected and he's supposed to be looked up to. He's supposed to be an example of what living faithfully looks like. But this Pharisee in this story is the one with bad character. Jesus is switching everything on top of its head. He's fallen into the easy trap that is set up for people who place too high a value on their own merits for attaining holiness. He goes up to the temple to pray like any good Pharisee would. And he begins to pray, but his prayer very quickly turns into something else. Turns into something else. It starts off well enough, God, I thank you. And then his real motivations show immediately that I'm not like these people, right? I'm not like these other people. Instantly, we can tell that this Pharisee didn't come up to the temple to pray. He came up to the temple to self-eulogize. He came up to the temple to give his resume to God. He came to the temple to give his progress report to dad. And he says, look at everything that I have been able to accomplish, as if all of his abstinence from various different sins were of his own doing. He can't seem to come up with anything to be sorry for. He can't seem to come up with anything to be corrected for, to give credit to God for, to learn from. And he doesn't even ask for anything because he sustains himself. Even though he's supposed to be there to pray to God, he isn't actually convinced that he actually needs God. His his character shows that really what he thinks is, God is really lucky to have somebody like me coming to the temple. And then off in the corner, in the back somewhere, stood a tax collector, a person that the Bible, uh, especially the New Testament, refers to as a sinner. Uh, Remember uh, a few weeks ago what it means when the Bible calls somebody a sinner? Uh, Yes, in one way, we we are all sinners. We all um, hamartalos. We miss the mark. We go wrong. We fall short of the mark. We overshoot the mark of righteousness. But maybe you'll remember from a few weeks ago that when the Bible says sinner, it's referring to a specific kind of person. It's a technical term uh, used in a very technical way, it's used as a designation for certain people who are openly and egregiously defying God's laws in a public way. And more than that, their sins have separated them from community because their sins are so egregious. This is a sinner. This is a sinner category, okay? Um, And these are the people who sin against you seven times in a day that Jesus says to forgive over and over again. Tax collectors in the first century are included in this group because they constantly lie, they constantly steal, and they constantly swindle their fellow countrymen out of their own finances in order to benefit them and to benefit Rome. 
They are traitors, okay? Uh, a, a tax collector is not somebody that you invite to the Rotary Club, much less, uh, you know, your Shabbat meal on Friday night, okay? They are not people that you respect because... Um, uh, but uh, when the Son of Man comes, uh, Jesus says that this is the kind of person that represents what a faithful life looks like. Jesus says that the tax collector is the kind of person that he's going to be looking for when the faith will be made sight. Uh, he uses him as an example of living faithfully on the earth. When the Son of Man comes, when the day be, uh comes this tax collector standing off in the corners who Jesus is going to be looking for and not the Pharisee. Because this certain tax collector has a much different posture than the Pharisee does. The Pharisee is standing by himself, meaning he has separated himself from everybody else. Uh, he has, he, he's standing by himself praying because he believes that he's better than everyone else. He Uh, wouldn't dare to stand and pray with these people as if they're going to rub off on him somehow. Uh, Jesus isn't going to be looking for people like that. The tax collector is also standing by himself, but in a much different way. He's standing far off. He's not standing with the other people praying because it's not because he thinks less of other people, but it's because he's not welcome to stand with everybody else. He's too ashamed to be standing with everybody else. He can look around and see specific people that he has cheated their money out of for years. He couldn't possibly join them and worship God with them. It's like, uh, it's like the book, The Scarlet Letter. Everybody just knows what this guy has done. And so uh, he can't even, Jesus says, he can't even bring himself to look up to heaven. So, um, when ancient Jews prayed, they didn't pray how we pray. So we pray uh, with our head bowed, with our eyes closed, with our hands down. And if you're wearing a hat, you take off your hat, right? Uh, first century Jews prayed the exact opposite way. They prayed standing up. They prayed with their face looking up, eyes wide open, arms up into the sky, and they covered their heads, okay? The exact opposite way that we pray. And so it's really... Uh, really weird to look down if you're Jewish and you, and you pray. Uh, but he's so ashamed that he can't bear to look at God right now. And he says that he's, he's beating his chest. Uh, not the way a football player does when he scores a touchdown. What this, what this means is uh, it's a way of expressing grief and disappointment in himself. His posture is different. It's a posture of contrition. It's a posture that recognizes that he has a lot to be sorry for. He has a lot to correct. He has a lot to learn from and a lot to ask for, specifically forgiveness. He has a lot to lean on God for. So he asks, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The shock factor of this parable, of course, is that the tax collector is the one that goes home justified and the holy Pharisee does not. Why? Because they have different postures. One seeks mercy, the other seeks recognition. One is contrite and the other is proud. One seeks God and the other seeks himself. One is an example of faithful living and the other is not. 
We have to ask ourselves why Jesus tells us this parable. It's not, uh, we, we do know that it is supposed to show us a contrast of, of two different ways of what, a, of what Jesus thinks a faithful life looks like and what isn't. It's supposed to show us what a contrite heart looks like. But why does Jesus tell it like this? Why these characters? Why high on the hog versus lowly and contrite? And the answer is that it teaches us something about God. Surprise. That's what all the parables do. Okay. It teaches us that God condescends. God condescends. This will be a very important thing for us to remember during Advent. God condescends. Not in a bad way. What does that mean? It means that God stoops down. God stoops down. God does the opposite of what the Pharisee does. And... And he does exactly what the tax collector does. God doesn't build himself up. God makes himself low. God comes to our level. Uh, Jesus ends this parable with the point of the parable. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a parable about exaltation. It's a parable about elevation. One thing you got to know about Jesus, little side note, is that the book of Isaiah is really important to Jesus. Okay, I know I feel like I'm kind of taking a hard right here. The book of Isaiah is very important to Jesus. Uh, Isaiah is especially going to be very important to Jesus next week when he makes his uh, entrance into Jerusalem. Some scholars call Isaiah the Shakespeare of, uh, of the Old Testament. It's a poetic masterpiece. Uh, but it has more to say about the ministry of Jesus than any other book in the Bible. Maybe you could argue the Gospels, but any other book in the Bible, Isaiah has more to say about Jesus than anything else. Uh, And specifically, what is important to Jesus is what he loves about Isaiah is that it has a lot to say about Jesus and him as the Messiah. And here is what Isaiah has to say about what God thinks about elevation and condescension. And Jesus knows this passage. Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Did you catch that? I live in a high and holy place. God is exalted above all things, all creatures, everything that is created. God is higher than all those things. You can't get any higher than God. You cannot be elevated up to God's height. But also with the one who is lowly, who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God is elevated high, but also lives with people who are contrite and low in spirit. Low in spirit, maybe another way that you can translate that is people who are bad at being spiritual, like the tax collector. God condescends. He lives way up there, but he also lives way down here in the lowest of the lows. 
This is the real problem that the Pharisee had. Not only was he full of himself, he was really proud of his religious accomplishments. He didn't associate with people deemed unworthy. But the Pharisee's real problem is that he got God all wrong. The Pharisee was elevating himself up to God when God works in the exact opposite way. The Pharisee was putting himself in the highest place, exalting himself, elevating himself, because that's where he thinks God meets people. He thinks that his only shot at being close to God is through ritual purity, separating himself from the crowd of sinners, being good enough to meet God way up there somewhere. If only he had paid better attention in school, because as a good Pharisee, he would have memorized the entire Old Testament, and he would remember Isaiah 57. When God does meet us, it's not because of our merits. It is because we actually have no merits at all. When God does meet us, it's not because of our merits. It's because you actually have no merits at all. When God lives with people, it's not with the one who makes much of their own accomplishments. It's with the one who can't seem to come up with a list of accomplishments at all. The Pharisee is climbing up, but God is the one who is climbing down. Hold on to this idea of condescension. It's one of the most important theological truths that exist, okay? It's how we even get Christmas, okay? It's the reason that we are all here today. God stoops down. If God stayed all the way up there, then we would all be like the Pharisee trying to climb our way up. But fortunately for us, that's not how the story goes. Fortunately for us, the all too common theological position that God cannot even look upon sin, much less be around it, is complete and utter nonsense. It is theological nonsense. Here in just a few weeks, we'll get into the Advent season. And we'll get to see and explore the miracle of God's condescension. We'll get to wonder at it for about a month. And as we do, we can take the posture of the contrite tax collector and be able to say to ourselves, God stoops down to me. Let's pray together. Father, we are are humbled that you would even consider stooping down to us. Who does that? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. You come down from your high and lofty place and you decide to reside not only with us, but inside of us, in us. We thank you that you are so gracious and you're so willing to be a part of our lives that you would come down from your throne and you would be with us and live with us. Father, help us to... uh, Help us to, that when we do come up with a list of our own accomplishments, that we would come before you and say, we're sorry for coming up with that list, as if we needed to justify ourselves to you. Father, give us hearts that are contrite. Give us hearts that come before you, knowing that we need to rely and be sustained by you. We need you. We acknowledge our need for you. We love you, and we ask for the grace to love you more than we do right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen.